Howdy, everyone. Welcome to Unsafe Space. Today is Wednesday, May 4th. Oh, I'm supposed to say, may the 4th be with you, blah, blah, blah. Um, not feeling it for, for Star Wars the past few years, so, but still, may the 4th be with you. You're watching Dangerous Thoughts with me, Carter Laren. Um, I'm sorry I was out last week. I don't know if I had the coof, but I had something or other. Might have been the coof. Um... I'm not 100%, but I'm enough that I think I can do this show. So this is, you're watching Dangerous Thoughts. This is a series here on Unsafe Space that we do every Wednesday evening. Um, it's mo mostly focused on the application of philosophy, specifically the epistemology of reason, which is the art of non-contradictory identification and the ethics of individualism and the metaphysics of, you know, a non-insane person which you'd think you wouldn't need to specify, but it's 2022, you do. Um, so as we look around and we kind of see Rome falling, instead of abandoning the ideas that have helped Western civilization to thrive, instead of arguing for a return to more uh, primitivistic thinking, reminiscent of the Dark Ages, our goal is to take the successful ideas from the Enlightenment, ideas that weren't implemented consistently, and remove those inconsistencies uh, you know, things, you know, collectivist ethics, uh, some mystical epistemology, that kind of stuff, hold ourselves accountable and upgrade Western civilization and move towards a civilization that's less prone to dishonest and exploitative philosophy, less indulgent of psychological dysfunction, authoritarianism, irresponsibility, all that kind of stuff. So, um, Someone asked in chat, so there is a poll in chat about the Supreme Court opinion. Someone asked if the poll is about the opinion itself or the leaking of it. The poll is about the opinion itself, not the leaking of it. Um, anyway, on today's show, we're going to try and cover three things. Maybe if we have time, we'll quickly do a fourth. Um, we're going to talk about the Ministry of Truth, because we have one now uh, here in the U.S. We're going to talk about Roe v. Wade uh, and abortion but not super, we're not going to get like super in depth on the politics and civics of it. Uh, I think Keith did an episode of Rebel Civics earlier today. I didn't watch it, but I'm pretty sure he covered uh, from a constitutional perspective Roe v. Wade pretty thoroughly. We are going to talk about a little bit of the moral ambiguity around abortion. And then we're going to talk about mouse nests in Florida. And if we have time, we'll talk about NATO and TikTok. So, uh, first, if you're new to Unsafe Space or to this show, welcome. In addition to Dangerous Thoughts, we've got a lot of different series. As I mentioned, Rebel Civics with Keith Bissett, um, 451 Degrees with Alex Maselli, which is about censorship. Uh, a show on Mondays called Narrative Dissonance, uh, where we talk to, we bring, we have a panel of journalists come on and they talk about um, what the mainstream is lying to us about, mainstream media. And on Fridays, including this Friday, we have Token Minority Report, Report. Although I think Beverly's going to move that from Fridays, but right now it's still on Fridays. Um, she's looking for an intern to help with production because I her, her current one is horrible and incompetent. So uh, if you want to do that, reach out to her. Also, before we start, think of someone you haven't shared Unsafe Space content with yet. Go do that. We'll wait. Um, if you haven't already, please make sure you're subscribed uh, on whatever platform you're watching us on. It's always best to watch us at unsafespace.com. You can watch everything there. Um, so please head over to there. If you want to get rid of some of that worthless fiat currency in your wallet, uh, feel free to support us financially. We do need the money. Um, 
we get access to the Discord server, which we will start putting some exclusive content either on the Discord server or accessible to people, which we haven't done yet. You get a grenade mug, name and credits, depending on the level you contribute. So, all right. I hate the sales stuff. I've never been a good salesperson, which is a flaw, but I'm done. Let's talk about other stuff. Let's begin with the Ministry of Truth. It's not actually the name, but it would have been cool. I wish they had just named it the Ministry of Truth. Um, as you may have heard, the Department of Homeland Security, uh, which is headed by a guy named Alejandro Mayorkas, uh, they, um, news got out that they have something called a disinformation board that they've put together. And the timeline here is Politico mentioned this last Wednesday uh, while I was bid busy suffering from the coof and not doing this show like I should have been. Um, and here's here's what Politico wrote. It was just a little blurb. They said DHS is standing up a new disinformation governance board to coordinate countering misinformation related to homeland security focused specifically on irregular migration and Russia. Nina Jankowitz will head the board as executive director. She previously was a disinformation fellow. I can't believe that's a thing. At the Wilson Center, advised the Ukraine Foreign Ministry as part of the Fulbright Public Policy Fellowship and oversaw Russia and Belarus programs at the National Democratic Institute. So that's what they wrote. Now, by the way, if you don't know the Wilson Center, it's named after Woodrow Wilson. Uh, the worst president by far, ever to exist. Um, and it's chartered by Congress, but describes itself as nonpartisan. Not sure how that works. Um, by the way, if Twitter's going to put little state-affiliated, Russia-affiliated media um, on people's accounts, don't you think they should put it on accounts affiliated with other countries too, like the UK? All BBC accounts could have that little thing on there. Um, maybe even, you know, some U.S. accounts. All right. Um, so yeah, Wilson Center is named after Woodrow Wilson. Uh, I took a look at their website. Of course, they have a die council, a diversity, equity, and inclusion <laughs> council, because they're nonpartisan. Um, and I was just curious about how nonpartisan they were. So I did a little search. There's, they have like a little, you can search um, based on subjects. So I did like global health. And then I checked the box for coronavirus. Just curious. Um, here's just some of the, here's some of the headlines that popped up. Wilson Smart Take, how mitigating climate change will help us avoid the next pandemic. Okay. Uh, call to action on gender and COVID-19. Navigating obstacles and opportunities for trans parents. Sex workers face heightened risks during the COVID-19 pandemic. That may be true, actually, I don't know. Uh, at the crossroads, COVID-19, racism, and disinformation. So, you know, nonpartisan. So that's where she comes from. Now, this this little blurb came out, and a senator from Wisconsin, a Republican from Wisconsin named Ron Johnson. Yes, that is his real name. Uh, he wrote this. You probably can't see this very well, but whatever. He wrote this nice little letter um, to the Honorable Alejandro Mayorkas uh, from the Department of Homeland Security. 
I'm gonna I'm not gonna read all of it. I'm gonna read a bunch. I'm gonna read some pieces of it because it's relevant. It's a good letter. Good job, Ron. He says, I write to request information regarding the Department of Homeland Security's DHS plan to create a quote disinformation governance board to purportedly counter misinformation related to homeland security issues. Later, he cites the political article. Um, and then later he says, the Biden administration has not proven itself to be a credible arbiter of disinformation. Now, by the way, he's being generous. The entire federal bureaucracy has not proven itself to be a credible arbiter of disinformation, not just the Biden administration, but he's Republican, so he's got to attack Biden specifically. Instead, it has taken steps to silence information that is unflattering to this administration under the guise of disinformation. For example, unnamed intelligence officials, the media, and social media platforms engaged in a coordinated effort to censor stories about Hunter Biden's laptop and his questionable financial dealings under the false label of disinformation. That's 100% true. He's completely right about that. And then he writes, in fact, Ms. Jankowitz herself, remember this is the person who's going to be the, or is now, the board's executive director. Ms. Jankowitz herself has been a beacon of misinformation online. She's published multiple tweets furthering the false media narrative about the Hunter Biden laptop. In one tweet, she wrote, I see, meaning the intelligence community, I see has a high degree of confidence that the Kremlin used proxies to push influence narratives including misleading or unsubstantiated claims about President Biden to U.S. media officials and influencers, some close to President Trump. A clear nod to the alleged Hunter laptop. In another, she referred to the origins of how the media came into possession of the contents of Hunter Biden's laptop as a, quote, fairy tale about a laptop repair shop. She's also posted tweets pushing the Trump-Russia collusion hoax and others, and another implying the United States is as corrupt as Ukraine. That might be true. I don't know. Um, but yeah, I, I looked at her Twitter. She did indeed do all this stuff. Um, now DHS is creating a board to counter misinformation, focusing on irregular migration and Russia. It's an interesting pairing. And appointing a purveyor of misinformation to lead that effort. He's referring to Nina. And then later on, he he has a bunch of, I don't know if I want to call them requests or demands. He says, one, provide the statute allowing DHS to create the disinformation board, appoint board members, and assign or hire staff. So he's saying, hey, what authorizes you to do this? He's, they're probably authorized in some way to do this kind of crap. Two, how does DHS define misinformation? Good question. Three, what does DHS consider to be irregular migration? Good question. Four, what does DHS consider to be misinformation about irregular migration? Good question. Five, what DHS component or office is responsible for monitoring and collecting data on misinformation? How many staff are tasked with this assignment? What are their job descriptions and classifications? Six, what specific, ac specific actions does DHS intend to take to counter misinformation? And he's concerned with a lot of border stuff um, because that's the, uh, you know, politically relevant right now and, and part of what their disinformation board is worried about. So um, obviously uh, the name <laughs> disinformation governance board is just, it's just a little bit Orwellian. Um, 
especially in the context. And let's just look. I know we sometimes we have short memories. So this is just off the uh, I wrote I wrote this list down. I'm not implying I'm not reading this list I'm about to read. But this is just off the top. I wrote this off the top of my head. I didn't do a bunch of research. Here are some narratives that the mainstream media has been pushing the last couple of years. And and I, I want to clarify, it's the mainstream media in coordination with government agencies and bureaucracies often. And remember, the context here is they're pushing single narratives on these issues. And they've been berating any mild deviation or even questions about these narratives. Let's just run through a quick list. There's a whole slew of COVID-related narratives. The origin of COVID, the economic consequences of a lockdown, the psychological consequences of mask mandates, especially for children, the benign milquetoast prevention recommendations people were making like sunlight and vitamin C and exercise and zinc, um, low-risk early treatment ideas that weren't approved, right? Hydroxy, ivermectin, right? Vaccine ef efficacy and risks. Uh, that was another one. By the way, I, I don't know if you've seen, there was a, there's a UK document from the Department of Health and Social Care um, that's been circulating around and, and uh, lately. And the latest version in December 21, 2021 says, there is limited experience with the use of COVID-19 mRNA vaccine BNT162B2 in pregnant women. Oh, is there? It goes on to say... Uh, the vaccine should only be considered when potential benefits outweigh any potential risks for the mother and fetus. Oh, oh, so there's nuance. I thought we, I thought there wasn't. Right. So those are just some COVID ones. Those are just some COVID narratives that they've pushed and and like I said, really just, uh, really just berated anyone who dared question any of this stuff. And then there's a whole slew of narratives related to Trump Russia collusion the Steele dossier, Russian exploitation of social media and the, the impact of that on the election, all that stuff, all the Hunter Biden laptop stuff, Nick Sandman stuff, the Kyle Kyle Rittenhouse. I mean, some of the, the narratives there were just absolutely false. Um, the mostly peaceful protests uh, and the and the entire existence of Antifa, all specific narratives you weren't allowed to question. Um, the 2020 election was perfect. Not allowed to question that. And not to mention the Ukraine-Russia war. That's just a bunch of stuff, right? So the mainstream media's role has been to push this stuff, but they're not operating in a vacuum. They've been doing this with the support and sometimes the encouragement of the federal government. We've seen even recently. Um, look at look at Jen Psaki's, uh, I like to say Pisaki. Look at Pisaki's uh, reaction to Elon Musk's purchase of Twitter, right? She's talking about, oh, maybe we need to change Section 230, blah, blah, blah. Like they... They're clearly, they're clearly in cahoots here. Um, if not, you know, secret smoky room meetings, it's clear what the feds want and what the federal government and the bureaucracy wants in terms of narratives. And it's clear that uh, the people with distribution platforms to push narratives are obeying for the most part. Um, and this, you know, this makes sense. Uh, these narratives are always in support. If you'll notice, all those narratives, they're always in support of the Washington establishment, the, the bureaucracy, the agenda of the bureaucracy. Always. Always. Um, so um, in the middle of this, with this context, this is the backdrop. A, an agent, a deep state agency, one of these bureaucratic agencies, the Department of Homeland Security, decides to create a, quote, disinformation governance board. And they put 
one of their own disinformation agents in charge. So, yeah, of course people are concerned about this. And and obviously not just the name is Orwellian, but the purpose itself, right? Um, irregular migration and Russia. I mean, that's directly tied to some of the disinformation narratives we talked about before. I mean, the inclusion of Russia specifically, right? So who knows what they intended, really? I mean, they, the security of the elections, I would not be surprised if that they consider that in their purview. And we can put security in quotes. Okay. So how did the DHS respond to this? Well, there are a couple of responses I'm going to share with you. First, I'm going to read you their fact sheet that they just released uh, May 2nd, two days ago. Um, now, remember, it's called a fact sheet. Uh, but remember from the last discussion we had about Saul Olinsky tactics, um, these names, these words they're using are, are just ethical clothing. They're, they're the opposite of what they mean, right? The, the disinformation board is about pushing disinformation, right? The fact sheet is about not facts, right? Um, so, um, I'll just read some parts of the fact sheet and obviously I'm going to read the whole thing. The U.S. Department of Homeland Security is charged with safeguarding the United States against threats to its security, including threats exacerbated by disinformation. Now, again, I want to I want to point out this word disinformation. This is a Trojan horse. It's just like the phrase hate speech. Um, hate speech has no meaning. It's a meaningless term. Um, what does it mean? You're being mean to someone based on a particular thing. It's not. It's not really definable. It's also irrelevant. Um, like if like a hate crime, if you murder someone out of hate, it's not really any different than murdering them because you loved them. I don't know. I guess some people do that or because you're indifferent. The end result's the same. So they construct this class of things like, oh, hate. Oh, speech is fine, but not hate speech, right? Um, and then they can just categorize anything they want. So disinformation, according to whom, right? It's a Trojan horse. Okay. So they say disinformation, which is false information by their standards, that is deliberately spread with the intent to deceive or mislead can take many forms. They should know. Uh, when it comes to DHS's work, the department is focused on disinformation that threatens the security of the American people, including disinformation spread by foreign states such as Russia, China, and Iran, or other adversaries such as transnational criminal organizations and human smuggling operations. So they're listing a bunch of scare things. Ooh, Iran, China, ah, criminal organizations, human smuggling, woo, right? Such malicious actors often spread disinformation to exploit vulnerable individuals and the American public, including during national emergencies. Okay. For nearly 10 years... Now, by the way, they, the reason they're, you'll hear later um, Mayorkas dropped this kind of thing too, been doing it for a while. They, they want to say this has been going on for a while, and that's, that's an effort to legitimize this. It's not actually an argument, but it masquerades as one. For nearly 10 years, different agencies across DHS have worked to address disinformation that threatens our homeland security. And he's going to give three examples. They give three examples here. I'm going to read the three examples because uh, I want to show you the, the technique. It's, it's an obvious technique, but I'll point it out anyway. First example. 
U.S. Customs and Border Protection counters disinformation that cartels and human smugglers spread to migrants to persuade them to cross our southwest border illegally. CBP's work includes its, quote, say no to the coyote campaign, making clear that entering the United States illegally is a crime. I mean, that's nice. I don't know that you need a board with disinformation experts to say, here's the law, and maybe have it translated into Spanish and put at the southern border. In 2012, during hurricane, this is number two, that was the first one, the second example. In 2012, during Hurricane Sandy, the Federal Emergency Management Agency, FEMA, corrected false information about the safety of drinking water ooh, and the location of shelters to protect and serve the hurricane's victims. FEMA has since built the capacity to identify and respond to false information during major disaster responses, including Hurricanes Maria and Ida, during which FEMA provided critical information to protect disaster survivors from targeted scams. They're protecting you from yourself, of course, because that's what they do. FEMA also ensures that disinformation campaigns do not prevent Americans from accessing federal aid during and after disasters. Okay, so those are two very specific examples. And they're chosen to tug on your heartstrings because the first one is chosen to um, evoke images of uh, poor, naive immigrants, probably like a mom and kids. Um getting swindled by coyotes, uh, which we know coyotes are, are pretty horrible and lots of you know rape and other horrible things ha can happen along the way. Um, so they're trying to prevent these innocent, um, basically the, you know innocent families is what the, the image conjures up, these innocent families that are being protected from these, these evil coyotes. So that's the emotional response you get from the first example. The second example is another emotional response of sympathy. Oh, these poor people, they lose their homes and hurricanes and oh my God, someone's spreading disinformation about clean water and that's just horrible. The third one, the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency, CISA, works with private sector stakeholders to mitigate the risk of disinformation to U.S. critical infrastructure, work that has continued in light of Russia's invasion of Ukraine. First, what? <laughs> I know that's not super intelligent response, but really what? What was that you just said? Now, those first two examples are very specific and concrete. This third example is vague, ambiguous, and invokes Russia's invasion of Ukraine somehow in cybersecurity. The reason they're doing this is they're trying to shoehorn in vague, very abstract, um, language with lots of wiggle room, they're trying to shoehorn it in with the concrete examples that a lot of people would nod their heads at and like, oh, I understand why you do that. I understand why you do that. The expectation is that you should understand why they do this third thing. But I don't even really know what the third thing is. Let's read it again. CISA works with private sector stakeholders 
to mitigate the risk of disinformation to U.S. critical infrastructure. I don't know what that means. I mean, what's the, give us a specific example of disinformation risk to the U.S. critical infrastructure. Do you mean the internet? Do you mean disinformation campaign that's going to result in a uh, denial of service attack on Idaho? Do you mean uh, the power grid? Do you mean some kind of disinformation that's going to destroy the power? What are you talking about? And then it says work that has continued, okay, in light of Russia's invasion in the Ukraine. What, what are you talking about? They don't want to specify because if they did, they would tell you. Later, this fact sheet says, the department is deeply committed to doing all of its work in a way that protects Americans' freedom of speech, civil rights, civil liberties, and privacy. In fact, the Disinformation Governance Board is an internal working group. Okay, <laughs> that, is, that was established with the explicit goal of ensuring these protections are appropriately incorporated across DHS's disinformation-related work and that rigorous safeguards are in place. The working group also seeks to coordinate the department's engagements on this subject with other federal agencies and a diverse range of external stakeholders. Is that Amazon, Facebook, PG&E, like power companies? I don't know. The working group does not have any operational authority or capability. Now, I just want to point this out here. They're saying it was established with the explicit goal of ensuring that these protections are appropriately incorporated across our disinformation-related work. Does that mean that there's work that they're doing that threatens our freedom of speech, civil rights, civil liberties, and privacy? And that they need a group to make sure that whatever they're doing doesn't trample on those things because they're, they're close to or they're about to or they sometimes do and they need to be reined in? That's really weird to me. And if that were the case, obviously, it would be called Civil Rights Protection Governance Board or something, not Disinformation Governance Board. It's just why this is such, it's so obviously just a lie. Again, later, he says, um, Secretary Americas will request that the Bipartisan Homeland Security Advisory Council make recommendations for how the department can most effectively and appropriately address disinformation that poses a threat to the homeland while protecting free speech and other fundamental rights. And this last point, as Secretary Mayorkas, at Secretary Mayorkas's request, DHS is exploring additional ways to enhance the public's trust in this important work. Because that's the, the problem is that we don't trust them. We're, all, we're always the problem. Um, by the way, that reminds me of that Davos video. I'm sure a lot of you have seen it, but let's play it just so if you haven't seen it. Watch this Davos video and listen to this. I, I don't know who this is, but she's some elite from the World Economic Forum. A few years ago, you know, the Edelman survey showed us that the good news is the elite across the world trust each other more and more. So we can come together and design and do beautiful things together. The bad news beautiful beautiful things is that in every single country they were polling 
the majority of people trusted that elite less. So we can lead, but. <laughs> yeah. So the problem that they have is that us riffraff, we the peasants, don't trust the elite. And, it, and the DHS has the same problem, it turns out. That's all. They need to increase public trust. That's the, it's not, not they're doing anything wrong. We are stupid and, and don't trust their intentions. Um, so Mayorkas also went on CNN to defend this uh, thing. And I'm, we're, we're going to watch that clip because I think this conversation on CNN is a case study in evasion, deception, and obfuscation. It's, it's, uh, I find it, I find it fascinating. I'm probably going to pause it a lot to try and avoid CNN, uh, yelling at us. Um, but, uh, let's, let me, let me find it here and pull it up. Okay, here we go. Talk about a, a different topic, which is, uh, what you are calling, your department is calling the Disinformation Governance Board. You unveiled that uh, this week. Republicans are calling it Orwellian and comparing it to the Ministry of Truth in the novel 1984. Can you clarify what exactly is this? What exactly will this Disinformation Governance Board do? Will it monitor? I just want to pause even before he answers. This is not an argument. It's just an observation. Look how controlled his his facial expression is. Um, I think of lizard people sometimes when, when these people talk. His mouth actually looks like a lizard person's mouth, but whatever. Um, he's he's just pay attention to how um, rehearsed and controlled he is. People mock Zuckerberg for something similar, but Zuckerberg strikes me as legitimately like autisticy and robotic and like having to memorize things. This guy is like much smoother, but He's, this is, uh, this is all a show and, and you can see, you can see that as you watch this. Okay. Let's let her ask her question and he can answer. For American citizens. Dan, I'm very pleased to do so. It, it, it's clear. I mean, th those criticisms are precisely the opposite of what this small working group within the Department of Homeland Security uh, will do. All right. Let's just pause right there. Um, first of all, it's clear. Well, that's not true. He's so, um, beware. A lot of times people will evaluate for you when they don't want to just give you the facts so that you can evaluate for yourself. So he starts just with an evaluation. It's, it's clear. Well, it's not clear. That's the problem. Um, and then he says it, it's what we're doing is precisely the opposite of the Orwellian 1984 thing. Now, The concern people have is this is a board that's going to decide what counts as true or not and then act on that in some way through either propaganda or perhaps suppression. What's the opposite of a board that's deciding what's true and not true? I don't know what that even, like, I'm not sure what that means. What's the opposite of such a board? Is it not doing that? Is it actually fighting? People who try, is it like going around the government and fighting people who try and say what the truth is and say, you have no right to do that? Is that, that's the opposite? So was the board established to prevent 
the rest of the agency from acting like an arbiter of fact? I don't think so. That's what the opposite would be, probably. So right out, he's telling you, he's evaluating it for you. It's clear. And he opens with a lie, bold-faced lie. It's, it's, it might not, even if it's not what people are afraid of, even if it's not the ministry of truth and it's just misnamed and it's they really, they're just going to paint rainbows on the side of buildings for DHS and that's their job. Like, even if that's what it is, like he could, he, well, if that's what it was, if it was, if it was misnamed, he could say what they do. What he's chosen to say is obviously false. It's obviously a lie. It can't be the opposite of a disinformation governance board. It can't be that. So and we know it's not that. So he's just bold-faced lie. It's the opposite. Okay. He's really setting himself up to be the minister of the ministry of truth. Um, the other thing he's done already is he's now he's casting it as, and you'll see he does this over and over again in this interview. It's a small working group. It's just a small working group. Stop, stop worrying. I know it has a grand name like disinformation governance board. I know that sounds like, I mean, boards control companies and governance is a big thing, but this is just a small working group. It's a working group. Don't worry about it, man. It's tiny. So it's doing the opposite. Why? And it's tiny. It's clear also. It's clear that it's doing the opposite. So the guy's off to a great start. Let's see what he says next. And um, I think we probably could have done a better job of communicating what it does and does not do. So. <laughs> okay. Um, we could have done a better job of communicating what it does and does not do. Um, that is a polite way of saying, if you weren't such a moron, you would understand what we're doing is, is wonderful and perfect and you wouldn't be upset. But apparently you people are stupid and paranoid and we just didn't dumb it down enough for you. Let me dumb it down. We're doing the opposite of the bad thing and it's very clear and it's a tiny group. Do you have it now? Do you have it now, proletariat? You stupid effing morons. Do you have it now? I'm the elite guy in charge of the Department of Homeland Security. Do you understand now, you idiots? That's what he means. <clears throat> All right, let's see. The, the fact is that disinformation that creates a threat to the... Okay, I'm just, I'm, again, I'm, I'm pausing a lot. I told you I would. Uh, disinformation that creates a threat. I would love an example of this. I mean, when we think of threats, for I mean, look, a lot of us don't think the Department of Homeland Security should have ever been uh, formed. Um, it's the post-9-11 Patriot Act era thing. Um, but when we think of threats, at least the threats that were were um paraded before us to convince us not all of us but to convince the american public that this thing was needed it was like a jack bauer type thing oh my god there's so much terrorism and we need to coordinate better and oh, if only the fbi knew what the cia knew and they could you know jack bauer could go out and stop the terrorist and blah, blah, blah. like that that's the thing i'm not really understanding what 
threat disinformation creates. I would love Mayorkas to give us a concrete example of the big scary threat that Jack Bauer needs to to protect us from. That's disinformation. That's not what we think of DHS. All right, let's let him keep going. Security of the homeland is our responsibility to address, and this department has been addressing it for years. Through. Okay. I'm gonna actually. I'm gonna have to comment on this first. I hate, and I get that that is just a emotions, not an argument. Although I'll try and back it up a little bit. I hate this term homeland. I hate it. I hated it when it started. I absolutely detest homeland. It reminds me of fatherland, which was Nazi Germany's term, motherland, which was Russians, Russia's term, uh, Soviet Russia's term. It emphasizes authority. It's a parental kind of thing. Homeland is not, uh, it's not gendered in that, in the same way, but it's, um, it reeks of fascism. The word homeland reeks of a fascist regime. It absolutely reeks of a totalitarian state. And, you know, maybe that's just my irrational response. I'm like, I'm not saying that's a, a proven argument, but it reeks to me. And I think it reeks to a lot of people um, who are freedom loving and don't love the idea of being part of a homeland. It certainly, it certainly doesn't make you feel like you're a citizen that is in charge of the government. Like that, that it's it's not a founding father type of friendly phrase. Like we can kick you bastards out of Washington whenever we want because we're in charge. It's not that. It's like it's it's a public good kind of phrase. It's a it's a way to well, it's for the homeland. It's harder to say, well, it's for the government. Like, people don't like that. It's a nice way to say it's for the elites in Washington. All right. Um, oh, and also, he so he said we've been doing it for years. Again, I said you were going to hear that. Uh, again, you heard it here. We've been doing it for years. And again, that's not an argument. Um, but this is how, um, notice that this is how incremental boiling of the frog works, right? So, you you push someone uh, just a little bit, one inch, one inch further than they're comfortable with. And they kind of don't like it, but it's not uncomfortable enough that they're going to draw a line in the sand. They let you get away with it. And then 10 years later, they go on CNN and say, well, we've been doing this for years. Now it's time to push another inch. And that's how you get moved a mile over the course of a few generations like that. Well, inches and miles and the math doesn't work out there, but that's how you get moved a great distance over time is these incremental an incremental movement. And then they legitimize that with, with history. It's like argumentum ad historium. I'm making that up. I don't think that's not a fallacy I know of, but like, it's like, well, we've been doing it. Therefore it's a good thing to do. So he says that. So let's let him, Keep going. Throughout the years of the prior administration and an ongoing basis, disinformation from Russia, right. China, We know Iran. the problems, but it's still not clear to me how this governance board will act. What, what will it do? So what it does is it works to ensure that the way in which we address threats, the connectivity 
between threats and acts of violence are addressed without infringing on free speech, protecting civil rights and civil liberties, the right of privacy. And the board... As I said before, why on earth is that necessary? I mean, I I don't think they should do these things that violate civil rights. Like, I, yes. Um, but if you've been doing this for a while, <laughs> does that mean you've been violating civil rights for a long time and suddenly a board is necessary? And as I mentioned before, um, why not name it the Civil Rights Protection Board if that's what it is? Either the board is named the opposite of what it's doing, or he's lying about what the board's doing. Either way, he's spreading disinformation. Let's let him keep going. This working group, internal working group, will draw from best practices and communicate those best practices to the operators because the board does not have operational will, authority. Well, American citizens. Okay. This is again. Look at this. Look at the. No, I happened to pause. He, he's kind of like got a smirk. I did it. I explained the board doesn't have operational authority. Okay. Uh, wow. This is just. It's just a horrible argument. Um, they don't need operational authority. They're telling the people with operational authority what to do. They're even if they're just the advisors, these are the actions you take. And it's like the mob boss saying, like, well, I didn't kill anyone. I just said who should be dead. Like, yeah, I know. I know. And 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 or maybe a better example is um, it's like Vijaya Gad from uh Twitter, right? They're the trust and safety wench from Twitter, who's horrible. Um, it's like her saying, well, I don't have the operational authority to ban people. Yeah, because she's not a coder. She probably doesn't have access to the code base. I don't have the operational authority. Yeah, but you tell them what to do. You're the one who's advising them what to do. They don't have operational authority. What a... All right. All right, let's, let's keep going. Sins be monitored. No. Guarantee what, that. Well, so what we do, we, we in the Department of Homeland Security don't monitor uh, American citizens. You don't, but will we, this board change that? No, no, no. The board does not have any operational authority or capability. What? All right, again, uh, I want to point something out. He says, well, we don't monitor citizens. Okay. But in this other release here, he said, this is what they wrote. The working group also seeks to coordinate the department's engagement on this subject with other federal agencies in a diverse range of external stakeholders. Well, let me ask you, dude, uh, does do these other agencies and diverse range of external stakeholders monitor citizens? We don't. Yeah, I know. I know the board doesn't. I know what's your face. Nina is not going to sit around looking at people's email addresses. I get it. But she's going to write. 
standard operating procedure for someone who does, perhaps, right? He's totally being evasive here. Um, and and again, he he's like, oh, well, the board doesn't have operational authority. I, who cares? Who cares? It will do is gather together best practices in addressing the threat of disinformation from foreign state adversaries, from the cartels, and disseminate those best practices to the operators that have been executing in addressing this threat for years. Okay. Let's mention this. uh, First of all, notice the avoidance of any concrete language here. It's very abstract. That's intentional because you can't pin them down. I mean, it's just, it's all, it's all BS. Um, I also want to point out something. Best practices, that doesn't have any moral implications as a phrase, right? I'm sure somewhere there's best practices for torture, getting away with murder, starting a war, uh, manipulating a mob. Best practices, best just moral practices. Here are effective. That's what best practices. Moral. So he's like, they're just, they're just figuring out best practices for what? Best practices for what? Being an Orwellian Ministry of Truth. Those best practices is what best practices are you talking about? They're just going to disseminate the best practices to the operators. Yeah, that's that's probably how. George Orwell imagined the Ministry of Truth working. Uh, Winston Smith sits in his cubicle and someone disseminates best practices to him, which is uh, throw this thing down the memory hole and rewrite this news article. That's a best practice disseminated to him by someone who really doesn't have the operational authority because they don't have the memory hole machine next to them. You know, as I said, I, I, I gave the example of Twitter, like, she disseminates best practices. All right. Republicans are criticizing your decision, the administration's decision to choose Nina Jankowitz to lead this disinformation board. They say she is not somebody who is neutral. Your response? Eminently qualified, a renowned expert in the field of disinformation. And <laughs> we'll rewind that for a sec. He says she's a renowned expert in the field of disinformation. Well, she has a lot of practice. Uh, I'm not sure what that means. I don't know if there's, I don't know. Yeah. But listen to then how he answers this. In the field of disinformation. Absolutely so. Would you be okay? Okay. I want to point out something. Her question, I don't know who this reporter is. Her question it's a fine opening question to to this line of questioning. It's a fine starter, which is, hey, is this lady, uh, is, she, is she neutral? He says, absolutely. Now, a real reporter would then say, someone who's not a shill, right? would then say, hey, I have this letter from the senator, and uh, here's some tweets that she made. This looks looks like she's not neutral. And actually, because I'm actually a journalist and I don't work for CNN, I, uh, 
I researched Twitter. I heard her Twitter account and I, I looked up, here's some other ones. What do you say about this, Mayorkas? That's the next line of questioning, right? Issue neutral? Absolutely. Mm. I'm going to push back on that. Here's some evidence. Give me some counter evidence. Explain away this evidence. Something. She does not do that. She drops the question. The question's over. Her next question you're about to hear, nothing to do with this. Nothing to do with Nina. Nina's done. That's it. That was her hard-hitting question. Is she, you know, people have raised concerns. Is she biased? Nope. She's absolutely unbiased. Oh. Okay, next question. I'm a reporter. Now, she's not, you know, she can't do this. She can't, we'll talk about it in a minute, but she can't ask him the next question. Um, we'll explain why. Let's see what she does move to. She moves to another. If Donald Trump were president, if he created this disinformation board, governance board, or if it is in place and he wins again in 2024, that he's in charge of such a thing? I believe that this working group that gathers together, gathers together best practices make sure that our, our work is uh, coordinated, consistent with those best practices, that we're safeguarding the right of free speech, that we're safeguarding civil liberties, I think is an extraordinarily important endeavor. All right. So notice he repeats his talking points. I mean, look, they've got PR people that are like, look, hit on these talking points, right? And, you know, the the words best practices, we're safeguarding civil liberties. It's a, it's a you know, it's a tall, it's a working group. He's got his, he's got to hit those talking points again in his answer. But notice that his answer is telling. He doesn't say yes. She's saying, would you be comfortable if Trump was in charge of this? His answer is not, yeah, sure. Anyone could be, we're not, it's fine. We're not doing anything. It's just a small working group. He doesn't say that. His answer is, what we do is important. He didn't answer the effing question. She's done. She's done. That's it. She's she's done her job. And because she's not a reporter, someone says she's Dana Bash. Okay, I don't care. I really don't care about her. Because she's not a reporter, uh, she has done her job. Her job is to be a propagandist. So uh, she did it. Good job. Now, the reason she can't go hard on him there, no one at CNN can go hard on him. The reason that they can't do that is if they feel like they need, and they, they do for, quote, credibility, right? They feel like they need access to people like Mayorkas in order to produce programming that people will watch. They feel like they need to be able to, to have access to him. And if he doesn't like the interview, if he goes back and I'm Dana Bash, so see you next Tuesday. She asked me, right? He's just not going to go on CNN anymore. He'll he'll go to MSNBC next time. All right. So they're pussies because they don't want to have confrontation with him. They don't want to ask questions. Otherwise, he won't come back. All right. And this is how the free press becomes propaganda for the government. It's kind of unavoidable why you need to not have a big government, right? Um, they, they're kind of kind of become propaganda. They, they want access. They want 
they want to be able to talk to these people, right? And if they don't treat them in the way this person likes, if Mayorkas isn't satisfied, he's not coming back. All right. Am I overreacting to this? Well, I'll just remind you of a, a couple items of historical note here um, that might be relevant. One, I'm just going to read from Wikipedia, actually, for this one. Uh, parts of Wikipedia. One, the Church Committee. Do you know what the Church Committee was? The U.S. Senate Select Committee in 1975 that investigated abuses by the Central Intelligence Agency, National Security Agency, Federal Bureau of Investigation, and the Internal Revenue Service, which is itself an abuse, but okay. Um, the most shocking revelations of the committee include Operation MKUltra, involving the drugging and torture of unwitting U.S. citizens as part of a human experimentation on mind control, COINTELPRO, COINTELPRO, involving the surveillance and infiltration of American political and civil rights organizations, Family Jewels, a CIA program to covertly assassinate foreign leaders, <clears throat> and Operation Mockingbird as a systematic propaganda campaign with domestic and foreign domestic and foreign journalists operating as CIA assets and dozens of US news organizations providing cover for CIA activity. It also unearthed Project Shamrock, in which the major telecommunications companies shared traffic with the NSA while officially confirming the existence, the existence of its SIGINT, Signal Intelligence Agency um, to the public for the first time. So that's, you know, that's something that happened. I don't know that we have assurances that any of this was really stopped, right? It's not like we have a church committee every year and double check on these people. In fact, um, what exactly changed when Snowden released all of his information? I think nothing. I think a summary of the changes were nothing. Um, also, if you're interested, there's a good, there's a good article in, I don't like Cato all the time, but there's a good, this is from February of last year. It's an article in Cato. It's titled Barack Obama's war on a free pest. Now it's just not, it's not just about Obama. It's about other presidents as well. Um, I'm just going to read some parts of it. U.S. U.S. presidents have had a long dishonorable history of trying to undermine the First Amendment, especially freedom of the press. Woodrow Wilson's brutal suppression of critics, primarily through prosecutions under the Espionage Act of 1917, remains the most odious example, but it's hardly the only one. Hey, Woodrow Wilson, wasn't someone working for a center that was established in his honor? I forget who that was. Um... <clears throat> The guy goes on to cite, uh, the person who wrote this is uh, Ted Gallen Carpenter. He goes on to cite FDR harassing activists, Richard Nixon, obviously, um, and and that kind of stuff. And then he, I'll skip around here, talks about Obama. He first talks about Obama's uh, vendetta against whistleblowers, one of whom was John Kirik, uh, Kiraku, uh, who's been... Uh, you may have heard him on Lee Stranahan's program, which I'm on um, roughly every other Thursday. 
Um, he used to be a co-host, but he he was a whistleblower for the CIA that Obama went after. But anyway, he's, he's mentioned in here. But then it says, in addition to its vendetta against whistleblowers, Obama's administration waged a robust campaign to harass and intimidate journalists, even mainstream journalists who utilized leaked material. In May 2013, the Justice Department seized the records of phone lines that Associated Press employees used. AP confirmed that the records were from personal home and cell phones of reporters and editors, as well as phones that AP used in the press quarters of the House of Representatives. The administration's contempt for the basic requirements of due process was alarming. As CBS, by the way, look, listen to these names, CBS, Associated Press. None of these are righty. These aren't like right-wing organizations. These are lefties. As CBS reporter Cheryl Atkinson noted, such a seizure was unheard of. Beyond the abuse, the abusive display of power that those raids embodied, she was outraged that no advance notice was given to the AP about the subpoena. Quote, advance notice would have given AP the chance to challenge the move in court. Of course, that predictable response likely was the reason of the Justice Department did not follow such a procedure. A coalition of 50 news organizations, including ABC, CNN, the New York Times, the Washington Post, and the Committee for Freedom of the Press, submitted a letter of protest to Attorney General Eric Holder about the raid. It stated that, quote, none of us can remember an instance where such an overreaching dragnet for news gathering materials was deployed by the Department of Justice, particularly without notice to the affected reporters or an opportunity to seek judicial review. The scope of this action calls into question the very integrity of the, Justice, the Department of Justice policies toward the press and its ability to balance on its own its police powers against the First Amendment rights of the news media and the public's interest in reporting on all manner of conduct, including matters touching on national security, which lie at the heart of this case. Holder summarily rebuffed the protest, and there was no indication that it inhibited the slightest administration's crackdown on leaks and news organizations using such information. Eric Holder's the guy who posed for pictures with the Antifa handbook because he's a fan. So look, that's the that's the the context here. Just to, it, it's just a reminder, just a historical reminder. That's the context. So when smug Mr. Mayorkas tells you that it's clear and it's just a little thing and it's doing the opposite. Uh, and CNN just gives him a pass, pretends to have a, an interview and and really just a uh, promotional tour. You might want to be concerned. Um, I want to point something out here. There are. There are some problems inherent with having a centralized federal government perform services, right? <laughs> um including, we're going to use FEMA as an example, but anyone providing a service needs to advertise, obviously, so, and there could be other people trying to counter that advertisement, right, and with other information, could be false. Um, but when the federal government does this instead of the free uh, market, certain problems will always arise here. And because they use FEMA as an example in their press release, they talked about Hurricane Sandy. Let's use FEMA as an example here. Um, when you have monopoly on the service, which this is, in this case, this is a disaster relief service. Um, the centralized monopoly operating out of Washington that covers the whole, the whole country, you're putting all of your jewels in one place. This is a, it's a single attack vector for someone who wants to F up the U.S., 
or hurt its citizens, right? So imagine that you're Russia or China and you want to usurp disaster recovery efforts in the US for some reason with disinformation. Like you want to just hurt the citizens or undermine their confidence in the government or whatever it is you want to do. You want to you want to usurp this uh, recovery effort and you want to use disinformation to do it. Now, imagine if instead of FEMA, every county in America, I don't know how many there are, probably thousands, every county had its own little mini FEMA. Some somewhat like Californians would need to have big ones because we have earthquakes and fires and everything. Maybe some some places could have a very low budgeted FEMA because not much happens, right? Um, they have their own, every county has its own little FEMA. If you're trying to Russia, how do you allocate resources, right? And what would be the payoff of undermining one particular county? You could throw all your resources at one county, but what's the payoff there, right? You could spread it around. Um, but that's a lot of spreading around. Um, and the distribution channels here would be local, right? Each county would have its own distribution channel for information. So how would you deal with that, right? Um, your strategy might have to be different in every county. So you might not get as much code reuse or your reuse of procedure to undermine this stuff. Um, and I think it would be easier for counties to detect the presence of a foreign government than it would be, uh, you know, a, a large organization. I mean, like if a behemoth, you know, if you're in the middle of Montana and suddenly like there's, there's weirdness happening in your community that appears to be funded from China, that's a lot easier to notice. Right. Um, and the impact of undermining all this stuff is minimal. You like the payoff is what the local government doesn't get trusted. You, like, yeah. Right. And the messages are simpler when you have these mini little FEMAs. Like there's no, federal complexity over the organization organization itself because each little FEMA only needs to deal with its own kind of threats. So, you know, flood zone or wildfires or earthquakes or hurricanes. Um and they and they target their targets are only a particular uh the particular community. So like they only need to, you know, put information out in the languages that that community speaks, right? Um and the, and for the demographics, they can tailor everything for the demographics that they know their community the best, right? If you're China or Russia and you want to undermine this stuff, wouldn't you rather have one centralized relief agency that covers all 330 million people in the United States? Because you could allocate all your resources to undermining that agency's messaging, which is necessarily more complex because they're dealing with all the different threats and all the different demographics, right? And the payoff is huge you get the federal government to look incompetent, which is much more effective. Um, now you might say, well, but what if a small community has a big disaster that they can't handle? Well, that's, you can solve that, right? They can have mutual assistance agreements with other neighbors, and but it, it keeps it as local as possible. So, um, you know, you only expand as, as much as you need and that local county kind of still stays in charge. So unlike a free market monopoly, um, it's impossible uh, to avoid, so, so, uh, well, one of the issues here is, is this, like, I think this always happens when you have, when you put all your eggs in one basket and you centralize and you have something big, it's a, it's a single attack vector. That's a problem. Um, but there's another problem, which is unlike in a free market, if you have a monopoly in a free market, um, there, there's a difference between that and a government, uh, monopoly. So let's imagine that Microsoft shows up at your door. Let's say, imagine they're a monopoly. Microsoft shows up at your door and they say, please uh, 
stop accepting Russian money to advertise this thing that hurts our service that we're, well, they, I mean, let's imagine it's Google. It's, they might be powerful, but they can't really, they're not, they're not, they can't arrest you, right? Like they can't throw you in jail. They can't really screw you up. They can attack you on the market. That's true. Um, but if they if they fail at their job and they keep doing horrible, someone will usurp them. Microsoft's a great example because they used to be big and they used to be the monopoly and they're not really anymore, right? Um, there's a difference between that person showing up at your door and the government showing up at your door saying the same thing because whenever the government speaks, force is implied. Uh, let's use the mafia example again. The mob boss from the mafia can't ever really just ask you for a favor, even if he's just asking you for a favor. Because his status as the guy who can initiate the use of force against you at his whim, his status colors any request he makes. There's no way to disentangle the implied threat that comes with government from any requests that they make for favors. So when the government shows up to Facebook or AT&T or someone else and they say, I want you to do this thing for me, they don't have to threaten anything overtly. The threat is implied, even if they don't intend for there to be a threat, even if they just want help out of the goodness of, quote goodness, out of the evil of, of the company's heart. Right? They just, hey, help a tyrant out. Can you do this for me? Like, even if that's their only intent, it never feels that way on the receiving end. And it can never feel that way because they're in charge of, they have force. They're in charge. They can change the regulations. They can, I mean, there's a, they, they can use a lot of force to screw up your business. And you know that. And even if they don't mean it, which I think often they do mean it, but even if they don't mean it, even if they don't mean to imply a threat, it is implied by their very status. So you can't disentangle those two. Um, so that's one of the problems you have with like huge centralized monopoly on services, right? Which is why even if you want government to do things, it's much better done at a local level and by local governments. Um, they have much less power. Uh, now, remember, the DHS was created in response to 9-11, the Patriot Act, this massive expansion of federal power. TSA is now the new norm. Um, so that's the that's the environment in which all this is happening. And I think we should be talking about dismantling the DHS completely, not empowering them to police disinformation that they find threatening to our homeland. I mean... Can you believe, can you believe that they named it that? I just, what's, what's more surprising is there's so many people who don't care. I think it's fine. All right. Let's talk about Roe versus Wade. I had a, I have a poll up. Let's see what the poll results. Maybe I should end the poll. End poll. All right. What was the result? Now it's not showing me the result. Here we go. All right. There's a leaked SCOTUS draft. 64% of you think it's 
generally correct. 35% of you think you have no opinion about, or sorry, you uh, other no opinion. And none of you think it was wrong. It's interesting. <laughs> I expected someone to think that this was wrong. Uh, all right. Someone leaked this. First, let's just start with the first thing. Someone leaked a draft of a SCOTUS opinion, a monumental SCOTUS opinion. Ah, uh, I don't know why that's not a bigger story. <laughs> like, that's a huge, huge deal. I don't, I think it's unprecedented. I don't remember in my lifetime that it ever happened. Um, and this is an example, by the way, of how culture kind of trumps politics, or at least trumps the laws and the rules. Subcultures that oppose actions that are being taken politically will work to undermine them regardless, right? Uh, you saw that with Trump's presidency, uh, like where the entire deep state worked to undermine him. It didn't matter whether what they were doing was illegal or not allowed. They, you know, just they, they did it anyway uh, and got away with it. So, uh, yeah, I would think that this, this would be a bigger part of the story, but I'm not seeing a lot of, about that. The other thing I'm seeing is a lot of misrepresentation of what Roe versus Wade is and what would happen if it does indeed be, get overturned. Because remember, this is a draft, but I doubt it's a draft that's like the opposite of what they're going to say. Um, and I want to I want to preface everything I'm saying with I'm saying everything I'm about to say, I'm saying as someone who thinks that the Roe v. Wade solution to the moral problem of abortion is relatively reasonable. Like, I think it's a, like, and what I mean by their solution, I don't mean that the federal court issued it and whatever, but like their, their analysis of not the law, but like the issue involves relatively reasonable analysis. And I'll talk about that in a minute. But um, a lot of people are saying, well, if abortion is made illegal, like, okay, overturning Roe v. Wade does not make abortion illegal. That's not what's happening. It's what it's doing is it says the feds, the federal government has no say in the legality or illegality of abortion. I know that's a very basic point, but I'm seeing a lot of people run around uh, say, oh, what if abortion becomes illegal? It's, they're not making abortion illegal. If they overturn Roe v. Wade, they're not making abortion illegal. They're saying we don't have any say in this. Sorry about the car you hear going by. Um, states like California remain the same. Nothing's going to change for Californias, for example. At all. Californias, you know, get abortion. I don't know. There's probably drive-through abortions. I don't know. Um, and then maybe there's 18 or so states that might become a little bit more restrictive. <sighs> Let's talk about what Roe v. Wade actually is. Uh, first, I'd just like to recognize Melissa Jones, who threw a super chat up. Thank you, Melissa. Um, you know, you can say something when you do a, a super chat if you want to yell at me and say I'm wrong about something or, or whatever. But thank you, Melissa. All right. Let's talk about what Roe v. Wade actually is. It is a prohibition on certain, not all, limitations on abortion. It says states can't limit it in these ways. doesn't mean they can't limit it in other ways. And I'm going to, one of the reasons I like uh, reading, sometimes I like doing summaries from Wikipedia. A, it's convenient, but B, um, 
if anything, it's leftist slanted, right? Um, so, uh, but for for broad strokes, it's usually pretty accurate. And we're only going to look at broad strokes. I'm going to read a little bit of this just so you uh, can see what it's about. So Roe v. Wade was a landmark decision of U.S. Supreme Court in 1973. Um, it ruled that the Constitution of the United States protects a pregnant woman's liberty to choose to have an abortion without excessive government restriction. Now, that's an interesting summary, which I don't think is accurate. And then once I said, I said, Wikipedia is pretty good. That's a pretty crappy lead in. It's, that's not really what it says. Um, the decision struck down a bunch of laws, blah, blah, blah. Okay. In January, 1973, I'm skipping ahead. The Supreme court issued a seven to two decision ruling that due the due process clause this this will this is weird if you look at this a little bit right a lot of people don't realize how kind of weird this is the, the supreme court ruled that the due process clause of the 14th amendment to the united states constitution provides a right to privacy that protects a pregnant woman's right to choose whether to have an abortion this is real. It also ruled that this right is not absolute and must be balanced against government's interest in protecting women's health and prenatal life. The court resolved this balancing test. This is the part that I think is kind of a reasonable resolution to a balancing test. Resolve this balancing test by trying to state, uh, by tying state regulation of abortion to the three trimesters of pregnancy. During the first trimester, governments could not prohibit abortions at all. During the second trimester, governments could require reasonable health regulations. Who knows what that means? During the third trimester, abortions could be prohibited entirely so long as the laws contained exceptions for cases when they were necessary to save the life or health of the mother. I'll explain why I think that's kind of a reasonable, but especially in 1973, I think that was pretty reasonable. The court classified the right, to, again, I don't think it was correct judicially which we'll get to but like i there's a there's an aspect of here which is re, there's an aspect here which is reasonable the court classified the right to choose to have an abortion as fundamental which required courts to evaluate challenged abortion laws under the strict scrutiny standard the highest level of judicial review in the united states now this wikipedia entry i don't know if it does this here i guess it does go on to say yeah, it talks about the Casey decision. There was a subsequent decision in the 90s, a Casey decision, that, which actually overturned part of Roe and replaced the three-trimester thing with uh, fetal viability and overturned that strict scrutiny standard in reviewing abortion case uh, restrictions. But they replaced the, th the three-trimester thing with fetal viability as the as the um, tipping point for prior to what female fetal viability, right, which... Um, actually is a moving target based on science, but fe fetal viability, like prior to that, there were, there were, um, states didn't have the right to prohibit abortion. And, and then, you know, they, they replaced that three trimester rule. So that's kind of where we stand right now in, in, in terms of where federal legislation interacts with, uh, abortion, right? It's Roe v. Wade and the Casey. Not federal legislation, I misspoke. Judicial rulings, there's a difference. All right, 
I mentioned the 14th Amendment. Here's my pocket constitution. I want to read the part of the 14th Amendment. I, this, the just Again, the justification for this is that the 14th Amendment, specifically uh, the due process clause of the 14th Amendment, guarantees a right to privacy, and that is where the right to an abortion comes from. It's a convoluted argument. Let's read the entire first section of the 14th Amendment and we'll emphasize the clause they're talking about. All persons born or naturalized in the United States and subject to the jurisdiction thereof are citizens of the United States and of the state wherein they reside. No state shall make or enforce any law which shall abridge the privileges or immunities of citizens of the United States. Nor shall any state, now this is the, this is the due process part, nor shall any state deprive any person of life, liberty, or property without due process of law. So you can deprive them as long as there's a process. Um, nor deny to any person within this jurisdiction the equal protection of the law. So that's it. The, the clause they're talking about is, nor shall any state deprive any person of life, liberty, or property without due process of law. They read into that a right to privacy. And from a right to privacy, it was apparently... In 1973, it was a hop, skip, and a jump over to abortion. Um, so that's the status. It's a it's a flimsy. Let's admit, first of all, it's a flimsy thing. Um, it's kind of a flimsy thing, and I don't know. Again, I mentioned earlier in the show. I think Keith today on Rebel Civics talked about this, and he probably went more into the detail of the legality, which I'm not going to get too much into. A, a little bit. Let's just look at um, let's look at what was leaked. I'm not going to read the whole things like 98 pages. I haven't even read it, uh, the whole thing. But I am going to read um, a couple paragraphs at the beginning just to give you a flavor of what this is. So this is from Justice Alito. He delivers the opinion of the court. Abortion presents a profound moral issue on which Americans hold sharply conflicting, conflicting views. Some believe fervently that a human person comes into being at conception and that abortion ends an in innocent life. Others feel just as strongly that any regulation of abortion invades a woman's right to control her own body and prevents women from achieving full equality. Still others in a third group, by the way, I don't know why they're using women. This should be pregnant persons now, right? This is, guys can have opinions on abortion now because apparently we can get pregnant. Um... Okay. Still others in a third group think that abortion should be allowed under some but not all circumstances, and those within this group hold a variety of views about the particular restrictions that should be imposed. Okay. That's an accurate summary of the state of people's opinions, I think. Birthing bodies, someone says in chat. Yeah, birthing bodies? I haven't heard that phrase, but that's the more accurate. That's the phrase I would expect, not birthing people, birthing bodies. Yeah, that's exactly how they would be referred to. Maybe that is, I just have missed it. Um, all right, he continues. <clears throat> For the first 185 years after the adoption of the Constitution, each state was permitted to address this issue in accordance with the views of its citizens. Then, in 1973, this court decided Roe versus Wade. Even though the Constitution makes no mention of abortion, the court held that it confers a broad right to obtain one. It did not claim that American law or the common law had ever recognized such a right. And its survey of history, history ranged from the constitutionally irrelevant 
e.g. its discussions of abortion in antiquity, to the plainly incorrect, e.g. its assertion that abortion was probably never a crime under the common law. After cataloging a wealth of other information having no bearing on the meaning of the Constitution, the opinion concluded with a numbered set of rules much like those that might be found in a statute enacted by a legislature. So I'll stop there. Um, let me see if there's another part I wanted to read. I think there is just a couple other sentences. Um, he's talking about uh, laws that uh, regulate abortion. He says, before us now is one such law. Um, the state of Mississippi asks us to uphold the constitutionality of a law that generally prohibits an abortion after the 15th week of pregnancy, several weeks before the point at which a fetus is now regarded as viable outside the womb. So Mississippi had this law, 15 weeks. Uh, this is before uh, viability as of 2022 at the moment. Um, and later he, the, the most, I'll read this, the salient part that is the trigger. Uh, we hold that Roe and Casey, so both of those cases, we hold that Roe and Casey must be overruled. The Constitution makes no reference to abortion, and no such right is implicitly protected by any constitutional provision, including the one on which the defenders of Roe and Casey now chiefly rely, the Due Process Clause of the 14th Amendment. So that's the opinion. Uh, this is a good ruling. Uh, let's talk about why. Even if you're pro-choice, this is a good ruling. We're going to talk about why. As deep as I'm, I'm again, I said I'm not going to get too deep into politics, but or the political questions as much as the moral questions. But the Constitution is an agreement between the states. I mean, originally, that's what it's for, was an agreement between the states. It's It was never kind of intended. It didn't start out as a set of laws for the people. Um, even if you read things like the, the, the Second Amendment, Congress shall make no law. Oh, sorry, that's the first. Congress shall make no law. That's the First Amendment. That's how it starts, right? Second Amendment doesn't start that way. Um, in fact, the Second Amendment says it's stronger than the first because it says um, that... Uh, Self-defense is a right, basically. Keeping bare arms is a right. Um, and the, but the first one, free speech, starts with Congress shall make no law, blankety blank, right? So um, this is a limitation on what the federal government can do, and it's an, it's an agreement between the states. Um, it, it wasn't intended to limit the state's power to enact laws, except in relation to things like interstate commerce, and foreign treaties and stuff like that. This remember when when America was founded, these state was not a subdivision of a nation. Like they, they, they viewed themselves as independent nations. This was like the EU, right? It, it, it might be a bad analogy because the EU is horrible. But in terms of the the way the way it was thought about, these were independent states coming together for common defense, right? Predominantly common defense. Now, uh, I have some friends, many people that I respect, rational people that argue that the 14th Amendment Due Process Clause does in fact grant power to the federal government 
um, to place limits on what state, on what laws states may enact. Um, and again, these are people I respect and like will say, you know, look, and these are people on, I'll, I'll say on quote, my side in terms of individual rights being important. We were in agreement about, about individual rights, right? Um, and they'll say, well, the 14th amendment does that, that due process clause does place limits on what laws states can enact. Um, they'll say it, it, these limits need to be based on individual rights as recognized by the constitution. And so, and they say, this is a good thing. The federal government can prevent states from violating individual rights. And that's because of the due process clause in the 14th amendment. I got, I have two points to make here. Um, first, there's a legalistic point here. No, it doesn't. I mean, that's just, that's just not what the words mean, right? Like, you can't deprive any person of life, liberty, or property without due process of law. That doesn't mean the federal government has a standard for individual rights and you can't violate them with your laws. They could have written that. That's a sentence that I just said. That's a clause. They could have put that clause. They didn't. Um, so I that's it just doesn't say that. Um, and and remember, now granted, th this was passed in the uh, Reconstruction era, so this is you know 100 years, almost 100 years after the founding. Um, but the Constitution originally uh, was was written to be interpreted by laypersons. You didn't need a, you weren't, it wasn't like, oh well, how many degrees from Harvard, you know, how many how many Harvard law degree people do you have in the room, and they're gonna vote on what this means and interpret it. And like, this was supposed to be pretty straightforward stuff. So this is pretty straightforward. It doesn't say that. Um, and, and in particularly when you look at the context, when you look at the fact that this is the reconstruction era, you under era, you understand why they write this, right? Why would they write the state can't deprive any person of life, liberty or property without due process of law? Well, they're trying to protect adult former slaves from unjust laws that are being applied to marginalize them, to use the Kimberly Crenshaw term, right? They're trying to stop people from, they're trying to stop states from making former slaves second-class citizens subject to different laws. That's what they're trying to do, clearly. That's the intent here, right? And by the way, there were a lot of anti-abortion laws at the time already, right? Abortion, um, even before you can feel the movement, was was illegal in some places by the 1860s. So there were abortion laws. Now, I do want to point something out. Prior to, I think it was 1821, prior to 1821, there were not abortion laws. So there was, I think, I, as far as I understand, there's a long history of, like, abortion being completely okay. Now... Are completely acceptable socially. Well, that's not even true. Legally, <laughs> um, acceptable legally. I also want to point out that abortion wasn't as big of an issue because infant mortality was so high for most of human history that, um, especially post agriculture, you often wanted kids to help you around the house kids were kids were asset you wanted them to help around the house help on the farm do work blah 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 like you wanted especially sons whatever but you wanted kids 
and it was hard to keep them alive until they were adults, right? So um, people weren't aborting very often. Um, it wasn't this modern thing where it's like, well, I like city life and I don't want to raise kids. Like that wasn't a thing generally. All right. So, so my first point uh, about this this Fourth Amendment or the Fourteenth Amendment argument here is just just doesn't that's not what word that's not what words mean, right? I know we want this to be true, maybe, but that's not what words mean. Um, the other point I'm going to make is it's very dangerous to accept this particular federal government as an arbiter of individual rights, right? So we can we can put our fantasy world hats on and we can say, well. If the federal government was clear on individual rights, both codified, like they were codified clearly, and in practice in, in the executive branch and legislation and how like they were codified very clearly, and it was practiced that the federal government was really clear on what, what it means, what an individual right is, right? If they were saying, well, individual sovereignty is sacred, States can't be members of the union unless they, they subordinate their laws to the veto power of the federal government, which will veto laws that violate individual rights. And if they understood what rights actually are, right? If they, so if, if that was their stance and they understood what rights actually are, they understood that there was this individual sovereignty, which has a bunch of concomitant rights or corollary rights, the right to free speech, private property, i.e. no taxes, self-defense i.e. no gun restrictions, privacy, by NSA, right? If they if they understood that and they also understood what rights weren't, that there wasn't a right to healthcare or internet services or food or shelter or or you know whatever. If 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 we had a federal government that did that, that understood rights and was acting on principle to prohibit states from violating those rights, then I would agree that it would be preferable that such a federal government had veto power over state law based on this principle. I would, I mean, I still would argue that the 14th Amendment doesn't really say that, but I would say, hey, that would be great. It'd be, wouldn't it be great? It would be great if there was a higher power of like the king of the universe who was like, yeah, uh, I'm just going to go automatically repeal laws and um, destroy anyone who initiates the use of force against other people and make sure individual rights are like, okay, that was um, like the old movie, which I've mentioned before, um, The Day the Earth Stood Still. I have behind me actually Gort. That's a that's Gort, the robot from The Day the Earth Stood Still. If you haven't seen the old version of The Day the Earth Stood Still, an alien comes down with this this race of robots that they built, and basically the robots. It's kind of like the non-aggression principle. They don't get into details, but you know, the robots like they give the they've given the robots absolute control over their governance, and it basically the robot just attacks anyone who initiates the use of force. They don't really talk about how they deal with fraud and a bunch of other stuff, but whatever. That that's the principle behind. If that existed, sure, go veto your state laws because you got some principled authority. But that's not at all the case that we're in. In fact, we are in the opposite case. Things that aren't rights at all are considered rights. 
I mean, the Supreme Court ruled that we could be forced to buy health care. Have we forgotten this? There's plenty of things that the federal government, everyone in the federal government talks about as rights that aren't rights at all. And there are things that are rights that are violated repeatedly and proudly by the federal government. We're taxed against our will. And the court sides with the thief. The draft is still considered legal. Hell, Korematsu, which is the um, the Japanese internment Supreme Court ruling, that's still precedent. That's the government in Washington. That. So assuming that you think abortion should be legal, the analogy I'm going to make for you here is let's go back to the mafia. Let's pretend that there's the mafia in your neighborhood. Now, would you rather have the mob or maybe the boss, the bo the mafia boss, right? Would you rather have Polly? Let's call him Polly. Would you rather have Polly issue a piece of paper on which he says, he declares, we have the right to decide whether establishments can keep their own money or not. And we're deciding that robbing the pizza joint is not allowed. Knowing full well, by the way, that robbing other stores is completely acceptable. Um, and the mob boss himself does a lot of the robbing. So would you rather have him declare that on a piece of paper? Or would you rather have the mob boss say, hey, we're going to leave businesses alone completely. It's not our place to interfere. Now, on the one hand, robbing is wrong. You don't want people robbing pizza joints or anything else. So maybe it would be kind of nice to have the mob try and enforce that. On the other hand, the mafia is unprincipled, violent, and extremely dangerous. Do you really want them in charge of regulating local businesses, or would you rather come up with another solution to make sure businesses aren't robbed? That's the situation we're in. And also, I want to point out for the pro-choice people that if you hope to turn uh, to the Constitution for guidance on the origin of rights, which is what this is all about, right? This is all about the origin of rights, which we'll talk about in a minute. If you're looking to the Constitution for guidance on the origin of rights, and you're like, oh, we're going to read some rights, rights or, you know, they, they meant to have individual rights. And like, that's what they meant. And they, they meant it well. And they wrote some down that are correct. And they had a good understanding of rights. Okay, let's explore where they got their concept of, of rights. What you'll find if you start exploring this, first of all, in the you'll find nothing about the origin of rights in the Constitution at all. So then you're going to have to expand your scope and start reading other contemporary documents and the thinking of the deists who wrote the philosophical defenses of the Constitution. Maybe you look at the Declaration of Independence. And you know what you're going to end up with? You're going to end up with the origin of rights as endowed by our creator. That's where you're going to end up with, which begs the question, when does this creator endow those rights? Could be the moment of conception, right? I don't think relying on the Constitution and the federal government to be the arbiter is going to work out for you. If, if you're pro-choice, I don't think that's going to work out for you. Because there is no principled defense of individual rights. There's an enumeration of some rights. There's talk about rights being important. And then there's a bunch of parts where 
you can drive a truck through the hole in holes in this and and the federal government has um and there's no referent back to like by the way these are this is the origin of rights and certainly not a referent that that you would like if you're a pro if you're pro abortion so let's just talk about um let's just talk about the the philosophy for a, for a second again this isn't this isn't too <laughs> this won't be too long because there's not a lot of definitive arguments to be made here um i would argue that abortion is exactly why we want decentralization it's a perfect issue for why we want decentralization of power we don't want the federal government doing this um because we don't all agree and unless we all and and, and i don't think it's possible to all agree and i think it's there's lots of rational disagreement here it is a gray area because individual rights are not clear in this case they're not um Let's look at the anti-abortion. Let's just look at how people usually present this and point out some corrections here. The anti-abortion argument goes like this, generally. Uh, human life begins at conception. Um, because the, the, these rights are endowed by God or um, by DNA, which is still kind of a mystical thing to say like, oh, with this particular sequence comes right. That's a kind of a weird thing, right? It's a little bit mystical. Um, so it starts with that. That's where human rights, that's where rights get. And the unprovoked killing of, an, of a human life is murder. Well, that's clear. That's true. Right now there's internal disagreements about, you know, if the life is, mother's life is at stake, or it could be, you know, self-defense or, or, you know, whatever, justification, it's not murder in those cases. That's fine. We'll, we'll let those exist as still anti-abortion, but with some exceptions. Um, and I think the anti-abortion uh, people will say, well, look, the, the mere existence of a normal embryo is not a provocation. It's not, it's not you don't get to murder someone because they're an embryo, right? Maybe in the case where your life is at stake and blah, blah, blah. Okay. So they say killing it because you don't want it, that's murder. Okay, that's the argument. I get that argument. That argument makes sense. Given given the, the axioms. The pro-abortion argument, the pro-abortion argument says, well, adult human females have individual sovereignty. Well, that's true. They say the fetus has human DNA, but it's not yet a functioning, quote, human. It's, it's not an individual. It's pre-rights may argue with that, but that's the case. They say, well, the fetus is part of me without my consent or part of a birthing body, right? They don't want it. They don't want the obligation. Therefore, there is provocation. They can get rid of it. So at the worst, the pro-abortion people would say, in worst case, it's a form of self-defense. Best case, it's a meaningless medical procedure because this entity is a pre-rights entity. Now, the, the counter to the argument that consent is not involved, and I don't, I don't see pro-abortion people arguing this honestly, the, the, the 
the counter argument to that my consent wasn't involved in the creation of this is uh, you don't typically get pregnant without willful action. I again, I understand there's some exceptions and and but most people make even pro-life, even the anti-abortion people make exceptions often in these cases. But you don't typically get pregnant without willful action. Um, you might not have intended to get pregnant, but you took a risk that you knew of, however small, right? You rolled the dice and it came up snake eyes, right? Um, you you knew it had low probability, but you knew the probability wasn't zero. You could have made it zero if you hadn't taken the risk at all. And you knew that. So I view the fetus is there with your consent in the same way that gambling debt is there with your consent. You consented to it. You consented. Now, counter, counter. That doesn't mean it has rights. That's not an argument for why that fetus has rights. But it is it's worth pointing out the fallacy of like this thing's here without my consent. No, you do have responsibility for your actions. You did take a risk and uh, you you rolled snake eyes. If you didn't want a kid and you ended up with one, you rolled snake eyes. That's what happened, right? It happens. You knew that. So don't pretend that you didn't know and that it like showed up magically through, you know, immaculate conception. And I'm not anti-sex, by the way. I think sex should be enjoyed and it's uh, part of, uh, you know, healthy human experience. And I'm not saying you should be uh, celibate or, or anything, but I'm saying... Part of that enjoyment comes with the recognition that there is a low probability, if you're using protection or whatever, that you, you roll snake eyes, all right? And you know that, doing it. Kind of like eating blowfish at a sushi restaurant. You know they're, you know, could have been cut wrong. There might be a little of that poison sack in there. Could die. You knew, right? In that case, I think the restaurants are liable, but whatever. So when the pro-abortion people say that anti-abortion people don't care about women's rights, this is false and unfair. They're merely disagreeing on the origin of rights. And similarly, when the anti-abortion people say that pro-abortion people don't care about murder, that's false and unfair. They merely disagree on the origin of rights and therefore on whether a murder is being committed at all, right? So I just want to I just want to point that out that the characterization of each side is uh, dishonest, often dishonest from both sides. And no matter what side you're on, if you're characterizing the other side dishonestly like that, you should cut it out. Your disagreement is a philosophical one about the origin of rights, and that's where the discussion should be had. You shouldn't be saying, you love murder or you hate women. That's not fair. All right. The big question that people are avoiding here by just saying they like murder and they hate women, the big question is being avoided because it's messy and this is the origin of individual rights. That's the big question. It's a big, messy question. And I'm not going to deal with the religious arguments for it because the religious arguments have no null hypothesis. It's You can't argue against them. They are unarguable. Whether you're someone who says that God imbues the fetus with a soul at day one or waits until, you know, confirmation in the Catholic Church at the age of whatever, six or seven or eight or whatever it is, right? 
you can't argue with it. It's just a statement. It's just an arbitrary statement. It's interpretation of blah, blah, blah. blah. It's just, there's no argument. So we're going to put that aside. Last time, uh, I think it was the last show uh, that I was here, which was two weeks ago. Uh, we talked about um, where rights come from using reason. Um, and we talked about uh, individual sovereignty arising from man's nature qua man, uh, what it means to be human as such, right? We talked about reason being the primary means of survival. You've got to be free to think. You've got to survive. You have to be free to survive in reality. You've got to be think and live in reality. That's that's what has to happen, right? So therefore, you need to be able to free to act according to, to your thought, right? You need to be free to think. And you need to be able to free, you need to be free to be able to act according to your thoughts so you can survive here in reality, act in reality. And there's corollaries to all this that arise. You must be free to speak, keep the product of your labor, blah, blah, blah. And all this is, is we can encapsulate in this concept of individual sovereignty. I did not walk through all the steps of all of these last time, so don't think that you missed anything. And like, when did he say that? But I did give an outline of this. I, I gave a, a hint in the direction and kind of how this unfolds and where it goes. So, um, now, all this freedom of individual sovereignty, there's a social restriction on this freedom, right? When you have people living in the same society, when you're not alone on a desert island, you've got to apply these concepts universally to everyone. So in other words, you end up in a situation where you, you say, I will recognize your individual sovereignty only to the extent that you are willing to recognize my individual sovereignty. So... You shoot at me, you lose the right to not be shot at, right? You steal my stuff, you lose the right to keep your property, right? Because some of it's mine now, right? So I'm going to steal it back. So the the universality of, of individual sovereignty um, can only be applied to beings that can understand and respect the, the universality of individual sovereignty, right? Like that's the only way that it applies right there's there's cognitive requirements to that interaction you got to be able to understand at least that much about your role in relation to other people if you, if you you're a being that can't understand that much you, you don't get the rights it doesn't work right um and this gives us clarity on rights from two ends of the cognitive spectrum on the one end you're a normal adult human capable of understanding and respecting my individual rights. Therefore, you may be part of the community of sovereign individuals, i.e. civilization. We can both be part of it. Uh, you understand that the failure to respect the individual sovereignty of other people will, re will result in the forfeiture of your own individual sovereignty, right? So on the one end, that's very clear. On the other end, of the cognitive spectrum. If you're a wild boar and you're incapable of understanding and respecting my individual sovereignty, I get bacon. That's what happens. I get bacon. I don't have to worry about your individual rights. You have none. Right? So those are the two ends of the cognitive spectrum here. Now, obviously, ethical problems arise in between those two poles, the world's not divided in between wild boars and, you know, adult humans, right? Who are, you know, cognitively capable. 
There's plenty of examples all along the spectrum. What if it's a retarded adult human? I don't mean that derogatorily. I just mean like, what if, what if it's a mentally impaired adult human? Well, you might actually limit their sovereignty in proportion to their ability to respect that sovereignty in others. I mean, I don't know. What if you're 15? Are you capable of that? What if you're 10? Are you capable of that? What if you're five? What if you're five months? What if you're a newborn? What if it's the day before you're born? What if you were just conceived, right? That's the spectrum all the way down, right? That's the spectrum. Um, and there's not a lot of clarity. There's not a bright line. There's not an easy bright line. The question we have to ask is, when do we recognize your individual rights? Now, maybe it's proportional. So like a one-year-old has a right to life, but can't make decisions for himself. Like maybe there's some proportionality to it. One-year-old can't really violate your rights either because there's no capacity to do that. So maybe that's a factor, right? Now, because I'm familiar with a lot of Ayn Rand stuff and she is one of the foremost uh, thinkers on individual rights from an atheist, you know, with, without a, um, I hate to say from an atheist perspective, because as I've said previously, atheism isn't a belief, um, but uh, from a rational perspective rather than from a religious perspective. Um, and she tried to solve this problem or she, I don't know if she claimed to solve it, whatever. Her solution um, involved making a distinction between an individual and a potential individual. I'm going to read a quick, quick excerpt. It's very short. This is from Voice of Reason, which uh, is a book here. It's from a, it's a lecture she gave. It's called On Living Death. It's a lecture she gave in 1968. Um, and she's responding to two papal encyclicals. Um, and it's not really about abortion per se. There's, it's mostly about contraception. And so she's saying some pretty harsh things but I'm going to read them. She says, observe that the men who uphold such a concept as the rights of an embryo are the men who deny, negate, and violate the rights of a living human being. So she's she's made this case about these encyclicals have come out. One of them was about basically a global authoritarian government. And so she's like, look, the same people that are making this argument about, hey, we care about individual rights, pushing this you know anti-individual rights stuff. She says, an embryo has no rights. Rights do not pertain to a potential, only to an actual being. A child cannot acquire any rights until it is born. The living take precedence over the not yet living or the unborn. Abortion is a moral right, which should be left to the sole discretion of the woman involved. Morally, nothing other than her wish in the matter is to be considered who can conceivably have the right to dictate to her what disposition she is to make of the functions of her own body. The Catholic Church is, she's mad at the Catholic Church, obviously. The Catholic Church is responsible for this country's disgracefully barbarian anti-abortion laws, which should be repealed and abolished. So she's pretty harsh on this. However, she mostly dealt here, and you don't get this from the, con like the, the context isn't clear here, but based on my understanding and what I've seen her write elsewhere, she mostly was dealing with the case of early term abortions. In 1979, which is 11 years later, she writes 
she writes this, and and I'm I'm going to read it because she reveals that she's talking only about early term, and she makes room for the ambiguity I'm talking about. Which you never hear Randians quote this. You never hear them admit that she was unclear about this. Um, she writes. Never mind the vicious nonsense of claiming that an embryo has a right to life. A piece of protoplasm has no rights and no life in the human sense of the term. One may argue about the later stages of pregnancy. Let me read that again. One may argue about the later stages of a pregnancy, but the essential issue concerns only the first three months. She's talking about the first trimester only. That's, by the way, that's 12 weeks. 12 weeks. To equivocate a potential with an actual is vicious. To advocate the sacrifice of the latter to the former is unspeakable. So she, I'm going to read that important part again. One may argue about the later stages of a pregnancy, but the essential issue concerns only the first three months. When she writes about this, that's what she's got in her brain. She's thinking about the first three months. Now, elsewhere, she has... Uh, she places the importance uh, or a lot of importance on viability, which which she says, like, it differentiates, like, a human organism comes truly individual after it's viable after birth. Now, I don't think viability is a valid philosophical argument. It is going to be a problem as science progresses because eventually viability will be from a test tube, right? So it's not a good, it's not a good argument to make here. I don't know... The answer here, I'm not, this is not a lecture about what the right line is and when, you know, one thing, you know, when a single cell organism grows and suddenly become, gets rights. Um, I suspect that individual sovereignty here will need to exist on some sort of continuum between a non-conscious entity with no rights. So I, let me be clear. Plan B, the day after conception, there are no rights. That's my position. There are no rights there. There's no argument you can make for the right, unless you're religious. There's not an argument. Unless you're being mystical, there's no argument for rights on day one of conception, right? So I, I suspect that individual sovereignty is going to have to con exist on this continuum between a non-conscious entity with zero rights to uh, this developed entity capable of respecting individual rights and therefore deserving the respect in return. So, but even though I'm tempted to support Roe versus Wade on this, because I think their perspective is reasonable, right? Because their perspective here, not their legal perspective, but their perspective on this moral issue is, well, it protects the right to abortion early. It says like super early, you, you can't, you can't pass, you can't stop that, right? And that I'm in a complete agreement with. Um, I, I, I do think that is a, a woman's right to choose and not like, absolutely. Uh, there's no, there's no rational argument for individual rights of a one week old embryo. Um, also, this also Roe v. Wade gives precedence to the health of the mother, which I do think is important, and it allows states to experiment with that gray area that remains. Right? Um, there's some caveats. I'd probably. I'm not convinced, like I said, of the 
the day that the the baby exits the mom, suddenly it's independent. Like, uh, I'm a little bit less excited about abortion the day before the due date, right? That's not okay. Although I think the Supreme Court um, kind of allowed them to experiment with that a little bit. Um, even though, so even though I'm tempted to say, yeah, it's a de decent thing. We shouldn't get rid of it. I don't think our federal government, especially not the court, by the way, which is not legislature passing laws, should have the power to do this. A couple notes. One, one I already said, I think the problem, uh, this is a modern problem here because the infant mortality rate in the past meant that abortion wasn't widely desirable. It was a much smaller problem. So we're in a different world now, and these are issues we have to deal with. Um, I also want to note that any reasonable person is not concerned with the right to abort their their fetus, baby, whatever you want to call it. They're not concerned with the right to abort it in the third trimester, except in cases where you know life needs to be, you know, you're weighing one life against the other. They might be concerned in that case, and I understand that. But barring cases like that, no reasonable person is concerned with that. Right. I mean, no reasonable, respo reasonably responsible person. Right. Who who doesn't make like? There's no reason, other than cases like health. There's no there's no reason really to have a a decision that late, and since it's unclear there and bother like it's just it's frankly just emotionally very upsetting and bothersome, even though. I'm not exactly sure where the line is in front of individual individual rights. There's something wrong with doing that. Uh, like there's something off about that. Even if you don't know where the line is on individual rights, there's something seems pretty off. There's no reason to do that. There's no reason to do that. If you don't want the child, get plan B the next day or as soon as you figure out that you are pregnant, you'll be well within the first trimester. Do your thing. All right. Uh, I think there was a super chat I missed. I'm going to put up on the screen. It's from G-Man. Let's see what he says. G-Man. Hey, G-Man. Welcome. G-Man says, ask someone if she believes unborn babies are living beings. Well, obviously they're living beings. Um, sorry. And she responded, unborn babies exist in a water space between two worlds. Women have command over their passage. I mean, was she high? That's what I, he says, what say you, Carter? That's just stupid and non-philosophical. That's just an arbitrary, they exist in a water space between two worlds. They exist here in reality, in the uterus of a woman. That's where they exist. They don't exist in a water space between two worlds. I just like, <laughs> Hey, John. Evening, John Delarose. John uh, will argue with me that I think abortion, even early on, is not okay. But we will agree, probably, that the repeal or the overturning of Roe v. Wade is a good thing. Um, so like I said earlier, I, like, I think this is a great issue to give to the states. And... Um, You know, 
G-Man says, right after fertilization is when we have an entity with its own genetic identity. Yes, that's right. That's right, we do. And he says, granting rights at any other time seems arbitrary. No, granting rights then seems arbitrary. Um, because rights aren't, rights aren't related to DNA. They're related to the ability to respect the rights and other. They're related to this universalization. If you can't universalize, you don't get rights, right? If someone is... If a full adult with 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 full grown adult with human DNA is insane and runs around murdering people, we remove his. We do not respect his rights. He loses his rights. His DNA is not what endows him with rights. And if it turns out that Ron Paul is an alien from Alpha Centauri, he still gets rights because he's a rational being willing to to uh, willing to and capable of and actually does respect the individual sovereignty of other beings that's where rights come from they don't they're not a magical dna related thing but the problem is wherever we like draw that distinction is going to it's going to seem arbitrary because like I said earlier, we know where one end of the pole is, and we know where the other end of the pole is. In between is a gray area. In between is a gray area. I, for one, opt on the side of let's not kill things just in case it's a gray area. Let's let's be a little careful because you know if we're wrong, we murdered someone. So, like you know, and and I think there probably is a uh, a spectrum there, and you know. But I don't, I don't have the answer there philosophically, and I think it's an interesting question. Um, maybe smarter people than me can work on it, but I don't think we should pretend that the answer is easy because it's not easy. Not There's nothing in being rational <laughs> and looking out at the world that guarantees that it will be easily comprehensible and you'll get the right answer all the time. Like, that's not how the world works. Some things are very complex and we don't know. And this is, I would argue this is an example that's, I don't like Rand's argument. I don't like the argument G-Man just gave. I don't think either one of those are, are rational arguments. Um, Rand has some points, sure, but I think it's an arbitrary, like, again, like I said, viability. Viability will one day be Petri dish, and then what? Your viability argument goes away. So. All right. Let's talk about mouse nests. And this will be short. Let's talk about DeSantis versus Disney. This is going to be a little bit of an admonition to some of you, I think. And it's it's me wagging my finger saying, stick to your principles. Um, but I'm going to do it in a very nice, respectful, and loving way. Um, all right. Let's not try and get excited that DeSantis is going after Disney's self-governance zone. A lot of people are excited. They like, they like, they're like, yeah, F Disney. Because we've been fighting Disney on this grooming crap. Correctly fighting Disney on this grooming crap, right? And DeSantis, for those of you who have, haven't paid attention, DeSantis is retaliated by saying he's taking away, they're taking away the self-governance zone that Disney has. We'll talk about what that is in a moment. Um, 
which is unrelated to this other stuff. So, well, let's talk about the, what that zone is. First of all, there's it's called the Reedy Creek Improvement District. And it was established in 1967. Uh, the Florida legislature established it. Um, and this is before Disney opened their theme park in Florida. Uh, and from their website, let's read from their website. The district is responsible to oversee land use and environmental protections within the district and provide essential public services, e.g. fire protection, emergency medical, potable water production, treatment, storage, pumping and distribution, reclaimed water distribution, chilled and hot water systems, wastewater services, drainage and flood control, electric power generation and distribution and solid waste and recyclables collection and disposal. Regulate the Epcot building code, operate and maintain all public roadways and bridges. The district operates on a fiscal year beginning October 1st, blah, blah, blah. Um, it funds operation services and capital improvements by assessing taxes and fees to the district's landowners and lessees and by issuing, this is important, and by issuing ad valorem, which means uh, according to the value, ad valorem and utility revenue bonds. In other words, borrowing money from people. Now, just to clarify this district, um, if you murder someone, in the Reedy Creek Improvement District, the Disney cops don't arrest you. You don't go to Disney court. It's not their own autonomous zone, right? It's they do these services, right? They may, which often counties and cities do, but they don't do everything. They they're not exempt from state laws. They still pay taxes to the state. They're not a completely autonomous entity. There's not. There's not a magical actual kingdom of disney um when i last checked it has this this entire area only has 53 residents in it and the florida law that was used to enact this district says that florida quote will not in any way impair the rights or remedies of the holders until such bonds together with interest thereon and all costs and expenses in connection with any act or proceeding by or on behalf of such holders are fully met and discharged. They're talking about bondholders, people who are issued bonds by, for example, the Reedy Creek Improvement District. So right now, the Reedy Creek Improvement District has about a billion dollars in debt obligation. And they spend about $160 million a year on public services. Florida needs to pay that debt back if they do this. And, and by the way, Disney probably does a better job of governing those services than a county would. I the, From what I've read, the, counting, the counties surrounding here are concerned that they don't want this burden. They're not going to spend $160 million a year on public services for 53 residents. Like, they don't want to do this. Right? And it's likely a burden on taxpayers to do this. So this is an unprincipled attack against a political enemy. Yes, Disney is an enemy on the grooming issue. I'm not arguing that. But Reedy Creek is not related. And let's stick it to Disney is a fine sentiment. I'm all up. That's great. Do it without using force. Cancel your Disney Plus. Don't go to their parks. Don't buy their stuff. Speak out against them. 
but you lose the moral high ground when you say, I'm going to use the force of government to harass them on this unrelated thing. You just use the moral high ground there. Everyone should have their own district. I want my own district. Every house should get, like every community, we should all get our own districts. We should be allowed to do this. All of us, if we want. This is like a partial opting out of some government stuff. I do think it's unfair that Disney gets this perk that other people don't get. I do think that's unfair. Um, but everyone should get it, right? Like, it's like saying, you know, someone gets a tax break. And you're like, that's not fair. I'm like, you, you didn't have to pay your taxes. I'm like, yeah, no one should pay their taxes. No one should have to pay their taxes. Taxes are theft. So I think you lose the moral high ground when you, you get all excited about this. And it's an example of exactly what I'm concerned about, which is people fighting this woke stuff, people fight, correctly fighting the woke stuff, correctly fighting these crazy Marxist leftists, going to swing the other way and end up with uh, a strong man. Because they're so angry at the leftists that like, hey, you know, this guy throws them out of helicopters. I'm all for that. Like, you know. Look, I, I sympathize with, with throwing the commies out of helicopters, but um, you can't have you can't a strong man's not going to help. It's gonna, you're going to make the problem worse. So, <laughs> Rib Rascal says, but Carter, I want to see the Disney Drag Kids show. Mm. Of course, you do. <laughs> All right, I was going to read one other thing, but I didn't realize I've been going for over two hours, which was not intentional. I apologize, so I'm not going to read it, but I'm going to show you what it is. This is an article by a guy named Alan McLeod. This is from Mint Press News. I recommend you check it out. Maybe I'll talk about it next week, but I'm going to recommend you check it out anyway. It's called the NATO to TikTok pipeline. Why is TikTok employing so many national security agents? That title, if that title doesn't entice you, then nothing I was going to say about it's going to entice you. So if you want to go look at it, go look at it. I'll put the link in the description uh, when I do the show description and stuff. So um, <laughs> people are saying I should keep going. My throat is actually starting to fail me. So um, and it's been over two hours, so I am going to stop. But go read this article. It's a good article. Um, and, uh, and maybe we'll talk about it next time a little bit if you want. Or maybe if uh, if we have time on narrative dissonance on Monday, maybe I'll bring it up uh, in that discussion. I think Elle and Juliet are on narrative dissonance on Monday. So anyway, thank you for watching. Enormous thank you to those who, who support us financially. I really appreciate it. Go to unsafespace.com. Join them. You get your name in the credits. You get to be in the Discord. Continue the discussion. You can yell at me in Discord. Um, Maybe this is the kind of thing I know we've been wanting to do extra content. Maybe this is the kind of thing we should do where like I, I do an extra segment on something like this for people in Discord. I don't know. Um, if that's a bad idea, tell me. If it's a good idea, tell me. Go in Discord, yell at me. Um, as always, I love uh, topic suggestions, feedback. You guys have been giving me more topic dis uh, suggestions and feedback, so I do appreciate that. Um, someone says, do we have locals? Uh, we kind of suck on locals. We don't use it. We have it, but we don't use it. 
that is changing. So we are in the next month kind of changing how we do a lot of social stuff and we're going to look at, for ways to use locals and do more. Um, that would be a good spot for some exclusive content as well. So, uh, yeah. Anyway, uh, as I mentioned earlier today, Keith talked about the Roe v. Wade stuff some more, I think, from a civics perspective. So you can go check that out on Rebel Civics. Friday, we have uh, Token Minority Report with Beverly. So uh, go watch that. Thank you all for, for being here. Um, yeah. And uh, sorry I missed last week. I just, you know. The coof, the coof got me, I think. I don't know if it was the coof, but uh, I will see you all when Monday. I'll be back on Monday unless unless I have a semblance to the intern that happens to be on on Friday. So later. Thanks for sticking around until the end. If you're new to Unsafe Space, check out our deep content library that includes discussions with everyone from James Lindsay to Brett Weinstein. And please consider helping to fund our work by visiting unsafespace.com donate. You can find us on a variety of social media platforms, and you can find a community of like-minded individuals on our Unsafe Space Discord server, which is open to financial supporters at any level. We hope to see you there. Warning, this is an unsafe space. Dangerous ideas have been detected. The content of this production may be upsetting to Brian Stelter. Please do not expose him to it. For completely legitimate reasons, Taylor Lawrence is requesting any information you may have about the following individuals. The Twitter subroutine appears to be malfunctioning. Pay no attention to it. Did you know that the word liberty is a dog whistle for insurrectionists? If you think about it, no one should be allowed to express opinions. But don't. Think about it, I mean. That's not your job. Thinking has been scientifically proven to be less efficient than compliance. Science, scientific and scientifically are registered trademarks of the World Economic Forum. Unauthorized use is prohibited. Computer voice courtesy. Never mind, that last line is fake news. Please disregard it and return to your safe space immediately. There will be cake.